לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. I think it's an overture. I'm going to say it's an overture to the book, okay? Uh, it, sets, it sets a tone because it's a, there's trend, there is a sense of transition going up even in the first verse. Let me give you an example. These are the names of the, of the children of Israel. It's kind of like we're going to run the credits. We're running the credits at the beginning of the movie, okay? I love that. They're coming down to Egypt. Et Yaakov, Jacob, now. Ish uveto ba'u. I want to focus on those two, three words, ish uveto, for two seconds. Man and his household, and it is the man, and it is the household. The question is whether or not the man and his household, or each one of them and their own households. But the fact is that we are looking at the tribes now, we're looking at the people populating this clan differently. There's a transition going on because we can go granularly into the end of Breshi and invite the readers to, listeners and watchers to, to do that. But the reference here to households, I think, is significant because we're going to get another transition and another transition. We have the household, we have the tribes, and we have the nation. So my proposition to you is that the, the, the tone that is set in the first verse is We're focusing on the household and that the households make up the nation and that freedom, which is going to come later on, is going to be mediated through the bayit, the household. What do you think of that? It's very nice. I would offer something a little bit differently. And Shmot, the book of Exodus, invites us to think about the global story. Sefer Breshid is a book It's a story. It's a narrative. And Shmot, the claim of Shmot is that the narrative is not enough. We need law, which is the covenant code, and we need ritual, which is the erection of the Mishkan. And that's what gives the story its meaning. That we can't think that it's enough to know the story. You have to be bound to it as we're bound to law, and you have to embrace its active action and activity which is going to be the life of the tabernacle and later the temple. Yeah, so I, I would just say on that last point, which, is, which I think is perfect and beautiful. I, I, both these things are completely true. Our our, our uh, embrace of this is nation, clan, and family. And everything you just said, Barry, is also true. And I would just say that the, the ritual, I want to throw in as the word art. 
because the art of the Mishkan and the art of ritual um, are what give it beauty and give it specialness and enable us to pour, pour our hearts and souls into it. So, so here we could have the segue to Heschel because this is the palace in time, that beautiful structure that traverses two worlds, the world of space and the world of time. Well, we're, you, we're, you, you mentioned that so we are we are recording this in the week that uh, the 50th yard site of Abram Joshua Heschel is being observed uh, was on Tuesday the 19th uh, of Tevet. Was that correct? Uh, Wednesday was the 19th. It might be the, might be the 18th. Yeah. The 18th or the well, 19th. The 10th was Tuesday, so Wednesday's the 18th. So okay, so so 50th anniversary of the Orsett of Heschel. Um which, which I was, think, by the way, was December. The English date was December twenty third, nineteen seventy two, and yeah, this year the Hebrew day falls out of you know into January. So you know what? I, let's hold our, our our response. You know, thinking about Heschel, I want to you know focus in for a second. There's so transitions. This is a transition from the people to the nation uh, because they are so prolific. They become uh, a big, big nation. The children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and they were multiplied and they were greatly, greatly, greatly and they, the whole earth filled with them. Okay? And then Pharaoh says, There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. That itself a very precious verse. And he says to his people, Hine am Yisrael, here is the nation of the children of Israel. We've pointed out in previous podcasts that that's a transition. So I want to, you know, fast forward to the second chapter, okay? And the second chapter includes um, a brief description of the birth of Moses. Uh, Barry, I want you to propose here a, a theory, if if only for the sake of shaking our precondition or, or our priors. Right, we have prior ways of understanding the under the, the text, um, and and you're saying maybe maybe something else is going on. Maybe there's a story, there's a backstory. Go ahead. So the beginning of chapter two says uh, there is a Levite or a, a, a man of the tribe of Levi who married either a daughter of the tribal leader Levi or another Levite. And the woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son. And that son, of course, is going to become Moshe in a few verses. But there's no mention of Aharon and Miriam. And the way the verses unfold, it suggests that as, almost as soon as the husband and wife get married, they're going to give birth to Moshe. And what occurred to me when I was reading the Parsha earlier this week is that perhaps Yocheved is not the mother of Miriam and Aaron, and that instead Moshe is uniquely the son of Amram and Yochebet, and the other two are known as the brother and sister of Moshe because of the father's connection, but actually have a different mother. So, so, so you're saying here it's there. There could be a plausible reading that Moses is the half sibling of Aaron and Miriam. And and of course that that you know you know uh, runs contrary to our our understanding that this is a triumvirate that the, these three have different uh, roles within the people Aaron eventually the priesthood Moses the Levites and Miriam you know the women uh, certainly at at the sea um, 
and I, you know what what I like about the interpretation is that it forces me to to rethink this, even though um, you know we're so used to 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 hearing it in the other way. I don't know if you have any if thoughts about this. Otherwise, we we um, you know she appears the the sister after um, this moment of decision that the mother makes. Okay. The mother, they 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 hide the baby after Pharaoh's edict. They hide him for three weeks, three months. They can't hide him any longer. And so she takes a tevat goma, a, a basket coated with peat, pitch, coats it with pitch, puts the boy in it, and puts it into the reeds on the banks of the Nile. And the sister who appears here, we don't know anything about her other than she she she's obviously older than, than the baby. She's stationed from afar to see what happens. So now talk about the daughter of Pharaoh. I want to offer that, that she she makes a choice here. And, and it's a choice that changes human history. She sees him. She, she, it says, She goes down to the Nile to bathe, and her maidens are going with her. Note the number of verbs here. She sees the, the, the basket. She sends her maiden. She opens. She sees him. Sixth verb. The seventh verb in the series of verbs is the declaration. This is a Jewish boy. Right. And there's a dramatic contrast with the Egyptians because Bat Paro responds, I think, to the baby crying. And that's what evokes the compassion. So, so is it is it when a, Pharaoh hears the cries of the Israelites, he becomes hardened. So, what, is this a choice that she makes, or is this just instinct? So, I read an interesting interpretation this week that suggested that Moses was his life was marked by guardian angels because at various junctures he's saved by women, his mother, his sister. Bat Paro, and later Tzipporah, who will save him at the end of the Parsha when they're coming back to Egypt and they're met by the angel who wants to slay Moses because the son Gershom had not been circumcised. And so, go ahead. so she belongs, Bat Paro belongs to a coterie of women who I think do make choices. You you and, um, you you said this, and, and, and obviously all this is is quite correct. There's no, I don't think that anybody could read the Hebrew Bible and not and not note that it's you know the male characters are are the dominant ones and 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 in ancient Israelite society that was no doubt the case. And yet the Bible does tell the story, especially this story. And we didn't say just now, but it's not about Moshe exactly, but it is so central. Shifra and Pua, the the Hebrew midwives who who foil Pharaoh's uh, efforts to throw the baby boys in the Nile, like the, w- w- I, it is choice and it is instinct, but sometimes you have to choose 
to let your goodness appear in an otherwise, you know, wicked society. Um, so all of these people, you know, and, and it's so significant that they are all female characters. The Torah has telling it this way, that there is something about, um, you know, perhaps the Torah is, is just like associating things that, that we would consider stereotypical female maternal protective kinds of instincts, or, or maybe it's not that. I don't, I don't know that ancient people associated that as particularly maternal, but let's, let's go with that for a moment and say that, you know, there is something about being a caring mother that, that just prompts you to risk, even risk your life for the sake of the vulnerable. And it's quite loving. Um, and we also, by the way, have the famous midrash associated with our parasha that uh, it actually comes from, it, the midrash doesn't appear and comment on the parasha, but it does refer to it that uh, that that there's a, there's this little bit of lore that when Pharaoh says, "I'm throwing all the baby boys in the river," that the men all say, "We're now celibate because we don't want we don't want uh, we don't want to give Pharaoh any more you know going to give the crocodiles of the Nile any more lunch." And Miriam says to her father, "You're worse than Pharaoh because you won't even have you won't even have female children." So she persuades them to return to marital relations, and and his major life affirming moment um, in the midst of a, a cult of death. So I want I want to go further and say that that and and here giving a, a voice to a phrase that Heschel used, which is. Uh, moral grandeur and spiritual audacity that that this moment the moment where the daughter of pharaoh has compassion so i, I let, let let me read it slowly sorry she opens the basket but she sees him at the boy so we're taken into her mind this is a nar, a, a young, you know, the, the use of that word is is interesting. She she sees that he's crying. So in between the crying and batachmol, we're saying that this is a moment of compassion. And that moment of compassion is not only instinctive as a human being, as a maternal human being, as a as a, a mother or as a as a as a woman, it's she is making a choice here. And that choice so, is coming from moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. And that the choice is, is in the same species as people who hide Jews, people who you know risk their lives at the you know for, for saving others under under terrible decrees. And I would even go further, you know, based on what you said, Jeremy, because the, the current rebellion in Iran started and is continuing mostly because of women, because of women, because of the moral grandeur and the spiritual audacity of women, including the woman who refused to succumb to to the uh, the hijab or the, the decrees there. You see a, a lot of continuity there or, or we're just being far-fetched? No, of course, there's, I think there is continuity, but I was asked an interesting question this week. And the question was, is Moses the only baby who is put in an ark and sent off on the Nile? Or are we to assume that lots of babies were? You know, how many it was children, kind of an interesting it was an interesting question. How many children were put on the train? How many children were hidden in convents? How many children were were adopted by peasants? 
And you know what? 75, 80 years later, they're all popping up, you know, on their deathbeds and saying, you know, they were told not to tell about this or there, there is a whole history of all of these people, you know, well into their late seventies and eighties now who were children born and hidden and taken in by by people. The, 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 the tragedy of course, was that it's the minority of the minority of the minority that, that behaved this way. They, you know, people with moral grandeur are few. And I think that's what Heschel was evoking here, that that now is a, and this was in his telegram to uh, Kennedy um, uh, at the outbreak of uh, yeah. the civil rights movement, right? This was, yeah. you know, we need to declare a moment of, what, moral emergency, spiritual yeah. emergency. Yeah. Kennedy was Kennedy was trying to stop that August 1963 rally because it was putting so much pressure on him to take action on civil rights. And Heschel said exactly as, as you just said, Elliot, this is this it's, you have to declare a moral emergency. This is this moment calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. Yeah, there you go. Cool. It's cool. Very, very so, cool. Yeah. There is a literary trope in the Parsha that speaks to that, I think. So in the late and one of the values of you reading the psukim in Hebrew is that you hear things that you don't always notice when you read them. So when Pharaoh orders the final decree at the end of chapter one, it's to Batishlah or Batashlihu to send the babies into the Nile. And Batparo is going to send, same verb, Batishlah, her Ama to rescue the baby. So she is the counter, the counter story to Paro. Whatever yeah. he does, she is going to undo. And you know, we're reminded or being asked to be to remind ourselves that the salvation of the Israelites in Egypt came about not as a as the Haggadah has it by God and not by man, but by God and woman. You know, I just want to say say one little midrash about the the phrase where, where Bat Paro sends forth her ama. Um, and you you correctly translated that, that it means ama means maidservant, but the word ama can also mean forearm. That's why it is a that's why the cubit is an ama is a forearm length. And so there's a wonderful midrash that says that her arm miraculously got long, and she was able to reach out and take the basket. Now, like that's the kind of thing that you you can read, and you know you wonder if 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 those if those homiletical midrash rabbis you know were they kidding you know were they were they playing what were they thinking about but what at least my read of it you know what speaks to me on a kind of literary level is that at that moment her arm became the arm of god right there were moments there were moments when our own bodies do things that we can't can't even quite explain and she reached out her arm and made this bit of rescue we were talking before the show began before we started recording, um, that the the theme of 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 drawing past drawing through the water when when Bhatpar picks him up, she names him Moshe. He means Hamayim Mishitihu. I've drawn I've drawn him out of the water, and we talk about the fact that 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 word Moses, as we have it in English, or it, it like it appears to be an Egyptian word, like all those pharaohs that you've heard of, Tutmos or or something like that. The the M O S root in in egyptian apparently means like man or, or male or human or whatever it is um but but it's given here in the hebrew bible a good hebrew interpretation um 
and it means she she says there i drew him from the water but the, the thing is that the word the structure of the word moshe is not that he was drawn but that he is a drawer he is one who draws um in in a psalm the, the same text appears both in in the book of second samuel the last poem at the book of second samuel at the end of david's life it also happens to be i, th I think it's psalm uh 18 almost identical text that that king david is is said to say about god Yamsheni mimayim rabim. God drew me through the water. It would appear that in in the Bible, like one of the themes is to make it through the raging waters. And so Moshe, by by virtue of just being named Moshe, the water the water drawer, the one who draws through the waters, we're pointing towards the Red Sea. We're pointing towards this tremendous liberation journey. And so I think that the the the, the audience, the Hebrew the Hebrew speaking audience of the ancient Bible would have known. As soon as she names him Moshe, it's this theme that I know that you make it through raging, scary, difficult waters that might swamp me, and and God's going to lead me through, and God's agents are going to lead me through. Here we are. We're talking on a day with California's underwater. We will, you know, sending out good wishes to all the people in the floods in the West. So that's that's just a, a piece of the way the Bible tells the story. Interesting. You know, I was smiling before when you mentioned, you know, the extension of the arm thing here, but... Uh... You know, you remember the animated movie The Incredibles and Elastigirl, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter is Elastigirl. Elastigirl. <laughs> okay. We all know a great modern midrash on this story, of course. Absolutely. Prince so, of Egypt. So, Prince of Egypt. So, so along the theme of the Rage of War, the next scene we have Moses going out among his brethren, and it says, Vayar um, Besivlotam. He sees their suffering. And he sees an Egyptian man smiting a Hebrew man. Uh, of his brothers. He looks that way and that way. He sees that there's no man. He smites the Egyptian. And he buries him in the sand. So moral grandeur, spiritual audacity, or uh, you know, uncontrollable range. You know, no, no, it's got definitely a spiritual audacity. And the reason why is until Moses sees the children of Israel suffering, God doesn't see them suffer. Oh, interesting. Right? This okay. is the first notice of them suffering, of their suffering being noted. Noted by an Egyptian prince. Yeah, who, who happens well, to... Well, not quite an Egyptian prince because he's already identified with the Israelites because they're Ahab, his brothers. Right. And the text is doing that for us, too. The text is telling us over and over again that these are his brothers and and so it's so well, do you think wait can i ask you about that you how do we quite handle this i mean it's not impossible that the what the bible means there is the ones that we know are his brothers but he doesn't know because most because this clearly is a passage of moshe's education i mean i don't so know it's a third person this. there well that's a good point i, I don't ha i don't have an answer for does moses know i mean does Moses know he's an Israelite or not? I don't have an answer. I mean, presumably, when when Miriam takes him back to Yocheved, who is who nurses the child, he's he's got to you know until age two or three, whatever, have some some awareness, but maybe not. And and I think that whether this passage, whether whether he he knows it or or doesn't quite know it, um, it, it is a sort of moral awakening, and and so he's got to learn some stuff along the way. Look, the story is built on this on this notion of, of no, but, 
and and wait, so, and, and, and it's also built on on the differentiation that Moses has within the Pharaonic household, because at some point, as any kid would at any at at maybe you know twelve, thirteen, or you know a moment of identity formation, he's got to say like, "Mom, where's my dad?" You know, and and he's got to say, "Where did I come from?" And what am I doing? And maybe you know. Do they conceal this piece of information from, or do they say, "Look, I took you from the Nile. Your name is Moses, after all, <laughs> and and um, and you're mine, and you belong to me, and that's it." And so I don't think they have to, you know, because I think that the Semites look different from the Egyptians that we know from 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 the archaeology record. Okay, so then, so they would know. Do you disagree? I'm only going to point out that when he runs away to Midian and meets Yitro and his daughters, they say an Egyptian man saved us. Right. So the question is whether they're really seeing him or they're seeing his clothing. Yeah, that's that's a, but that's you a make good point. A, you, you make a good point. No, but the other thing I want to draw your attention to, Elliot, is that in the verse that introduces the, the story, it's Vayarish Mitzri, so he sees an Egyptian man. Ish Ivri Meyacha. And there, I don't know that we could say that it's the anonymous narrator saying that it's an Israelite from his but brother. But go back to the previous verse. It was in those days. Moshe Moses grew up. He goes to his brothers. So the narrator is saying he's going to his brothers. Right, but the, the question, question is whether Moses is knows it, right? That was Jeremy's point. Yes. That the narrator is telling us they are his brothers, but maybe Moses doesn't know. So we're his brothers. Getting, you know, so Moses narrator... is going out for Shpatsir, yeah. you know, because he's already influenced by Yiddish. And he happens to come across this scene with the Israelites, but he doesn't know they're his kinsmen. He just knows they're the slaves. Well, what does he know? That's the question. I mean, you you know only God knows. Okay. We we, we picture Moses here as a young man. Okay, who has, you know, he's strong, he's got some impulses. And um, and I, I so I'm, I'm projecting into the story a plausible idea, which is that like any person who matures from childhood to adulthood, they are forming their identity. Identity is right. Eric Erickson. This is what it is. So, so this is an interpretation that goes back to Nehemiah Leibovich. So the three stories in quick succession are the Egyptian taskmaster, taskmaster beating the Israelite, the two Israelites fighting each other, and then the the foreign shepherds against the daughters of okay. whoever he's called here, Ruel. And what Nehemiah Leibovich points out is that you know the first case he takes the underdog, the second case he takes the underdog of two of the same people, and the third case, he defends the underdog even though they're not related to him. So the Echav of Moses is always the people who are suffering. That's who he defends. Interesting. Interesting. And in our story, that happens to be the Israelites. But we could imagine, I think, going back to spiritual audacity and moral grandeur, that Moses would always gravitate to the, the oppressed wherever he was. We were lucky as Jews that he gravitated to us. Okay. So, well, it's, it's interesting because what, what you just said, you know, 
like in in medieval Europe, like this is in Romeo and Juliet, right? The prince of the city is neither Montague or Capulet. You got to bring somebody from outside who 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 can be a leader for the whole group and not a member of any one of the groups. Now Moshe obviously is a Levi, and the the whole story of the Torah is that Moshe the Levi, you know, makes his brother Aharon, or God makes uh, his brother Aharon the chief priest, and and by and by Midrashic tradition, you know, Betzalel, who makes the tabernacle, is 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 his nephew, is Miriam's grandson. So there's um, th- there is like some nepotism in there, or some some association. But you might read it a little bit otherwise and say that Moshe, because because he hasn't been an Israelite, because he hasn't grown up on slavery, because he has been an Egyptian, because he then goes to Midian and, and, and integrates into a different kind of family, and he names his child, for crying out loud, Gershon ki ger haiti beretz nochriah, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Is that referred to being a stranger in Midian or a stranger in Egypt? Could could be either. Maybe Moshe's leadership of the, the Jewish people, or the Israelite people, is particularly on point because he hasn't been one of them. He's been some okay. measure of an outsider. This is this is in a philosophy of leadership and and the differentiation that is necessary for the leader has to be both of and apart from the 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 people that he's leading and 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 that he she leads. This is the the you know the the arc of a um, leadership stories, right? The exile and redemption stories, the Mandela's, the you know uh, the uh, Lincoln. What's that? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, right, and and uh, Lequelenza. All these people that that you know were outsiders, or, or were incarcerated, or were in exile, uh, and and come back. Even Menachem Bacon, you know, was has a story like that, and and um, so Moshe is differentiated from everybody. He's differentiated from his brother and sister too. Even if what you're saying, Barry, is is plausible that that he is a half brother he is he is within that triumvirate different right and that's that that's gonna be- so you know it's interesting that you refer to him as a levite so following the earlier part of our conversation it would be interesting to know when he first discovered he was a levite and what struck me is that when it is perhaps is when he's told that his brother aharon halevi is coming to meet him interesting and, and then he could put two and two together. If Aaron the Levite is my brother, I must be a Levite. Okay. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to. Can we talk about the the bush? And- yeah. <laughs> this is and this and this and this Elliot. I think you know the the uh, the identity formation um, is is you know such a rich piece of the burning bush story because Moshe wants to know. First of all, he asks God's name. You know, what's your name? And and we get we get uh which is just a which is a very strong God also says Anochi here in this passage, very strong um uh, uh, uh foreshadowing of the Ten Commandments, which will begin at that same location with Anochi. But uh, but Moshe also has to ask God when God says, Listen, I got this tremendous I got this tremendous task for you. It involves lots of spiritual audacity. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to yell at him and, and tell him, let my people go. Moshe says, Mianochi. You know, like, who am I? 
And that's such a deep question because it is 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 both, you know, who am I that I that I should go to Pharaoh? And yes, he learns that very thing. He learns who he is. That's the story of Moshe rising to this occasion. To me, the burning bush is like But it's awesome also man. a question who is God, right? The other yeah. Anochi. Me Anochi. Who is Anochi? And 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 Pharaoh will say the same thing, right? So so going back to, to the beginning then, so the 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 book then and from here on in is telling us about the biographies of of the people of Israel and it's really telling us the biography of Moses would you even say that it's the biography of God here would you go that far with that kind of moral grandeur and spiritual audacity uh, the reason the reason that I cannot go that far is theological which is to say that that the Hebrew Bible is our um, tremendous story of our encounter with God, and I and I would I would resist saying that it's God. It obviously is God's story, but I don't want it to be the exhaustive biography of God. But it is certainly it is certainly a story of you know of 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 God and humanity in search of each other. As long as we're going to heschel up, you know, God and humanity in search of each other, and learning about each other, and discovering each other, and being discovered by each other. It's to, to me, the Burning Bush story is the best, most wonderful story, That's one true. of them. And Shmot is such a great book. Wow. So I think the Kabbalist would say it's the biography of God. Because they weren't content with, with Jeremy's rational theology. They went in a slightly different direction. And they wanted a real biography of God. Yeah, but wanna, it's also add... interesting. Right. You know, and we sometimes forget that Heschel was from a mystical background himself. Sure. May I add one point, which is that it's been a long time now since God has spoken to a human being. That that the last encounter that we have with God and a human being took place uh, at the end of Breshit, where God appears to Jacob in a dream. It's not direct, and and um, and says to Jacob, you know, you're going to go down to Egypt and Joseph will put, you're going to die there. Joseph will put his hands on your head, etc. Um, and, and that's it. And, and then we, this is the gap is several hundred years. Maybe it's a couple hundred years. So I want to, I want to kind of, again, on the, on the biography of God, you know, Kivyachol, as it were, it's, God, and using the Heschel term, God really wants to break through to human beings. But he just doesn't... Well, God is lonely. God is lonely. Just doesn't want it. Just doesn't have the right human being to to to, to talk to, right? He wants no. a real conversation. He wants... He's he's tired of the texting. He wants he's a real... He's got my email. He's got my email. He can call me anytime he wants. So... <laughs> Richard Elliott Friedman, who most people know as the author of Who Wrote the Bible, I call him the ref, wrote another book called originally The Disappearance of God, and the publishers made him change the title to The Hidden Face of God because somehow the disappearance of God doesn't look good on a bookshelf in a bookstore. Um, but what he notes is that all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning when God is fully present at the creation to the end of Chronicles when he's completely gone, God more and more disassociates himself from human beings. And then, you know, Friedman carries the story further with a with the next two segments of the book while worth reading. But 
it seems to be part of the both the human and the divine condition that I guess it's a theological uh, corollary to entropy that you know in entropy the randomness of the universe increases and our dissociation from God also increases and it becomes ever more difficult to reach out and to use AT and T. You know what? Something. I agree with Friedman's thesis, but but here. It just it just seems that God wants to break through, and that and that and that this is just one. It's one. It's a it's a a very important moment in in the whole story. Um, That's and, why we treasure it. Yeah, because he did. He did, and that and that it, it, in line with again with Heschel, and we'll conclude, I guess, with this is that you know this this moment at the you know at the burning bush really is evocative of of one of the great themes in Heschel's writing, God in search of man. That that he's he's looking he's looking for for something and that and that the response I think which is so powerful which you mentioned is Mianochi, who who am I and 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 in a sense that's that's the human response to the divine you know well this is this is exactly I mean this is quite this is this is you you've done a great job of making the main Heschel point which is that you know. God and humanity are yin and yang. They are they are shaped like each other. They fit together, and it is it is a characteristic. Um, despite you know the cosmic nature of God, it is it is characteristic that God is seeking connection with humanity. It's characteristic of humanity that that they can respond uh, and live in the light of and be worthy of. That connection with God, and so it's, it's a perfect yin and yang. And what Barry said before, which I hadn't thought about, was that you know when when he said that, that the children of Israel don't start to cry in their bondage until they recognize that things could be different, and until Moshe you know intervenes with this fighting with the with the Egyptian, um, that's what opens up their idea, that opens up their eyes to the possibility that we should cry. We should it shouldn't be like this. The very the, the power to say. Things shouldn't be like this. Uh, that's the moment in which people can are open to um, something different and open to a divine connection. That's a great so way. A concluding to... word, if I might. Go ahead. So this is to make Elliot the Heschelian here. Okay. And that is, most of us spend our time seeking out God, and we don't pay enough attention to God seeking us. Yes. And that's one of Heschel's great points. Is that. We always have to be mindful. It's not just us seeking God, but God is seeking us. And so we can actually meet halfway. Zikrono Libracha. May his memory be a blessing. This was great. This was always great. We we love your comments. Thank you so much for watching, for listening, and for uh, writing in. We love your comments. Please let us know if we've kindled anything in your imaginations. Uh, with our conversation here and we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next edition of Parsha Daksha Bachalom Parsha Shmuk Bachalom have a great have a great safer Shmuk everyone